Hello and welcome to Under the Surface, a podcast that takes a closer look at advances in marine science and innovation. I'm your host, Neil James, and in Series 1, The Pollution Experience, we talk to experts dealing with issues and solutions surrounding marine plastics and oil pollution in the north. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Alex Bond, Principal Curator of Birds at the Natural History Museum. I'll be talking to Alex about their work on ingestion of plastics by birds. Hi, Alex, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's absolutely uh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, so you're based at the Natural History Museum. Would you be able to tell us about na- the Natural History Museum and what your role is there? Sure. So the Natural History Museum is, uh, well, I mean, it's the Natural History Museum. We've existed since 1753 in some form or another. Um, in total, we've got 80 million specimens covering everything from uh, herbarium sheets to birds to pinned insects to rocks from Mars. Um, the most visited indoor attraction in the UK in the last year. Um, and I get the privilege of, of looking after the one million birds in the collection. Well, that's a lot of birds. That must keep you um, very busy. Yeah, we've got 60,000 drawers. And I think I worked out if I looked at one drawer a day, I would just get over halfway before I retired. Oh, wow. Well, that's always good to have um, work lined up in the future. Something to keep you uh, keep you employed. Yeah, museums, you, do, you don't go into museum work expecting to finish anything. You just try and push things along so it's better than when you started. Oh, fantastic. Now, today we're going to be talking about your work on plastics and birds. Would you be able to tell us how you got started in this field? It's quite interesting. I was a graduate student in Canada and I went to my first international conference in Aberdeen. This would have been 2006. And I saw a talk by Jan van Franeker from the Netherlands talking about fulmars and ingesting plastics and how they were used as an indicator of the environmental health of the North Sea. Um, and I thought, you know, oh gosh, that's, that's really quite interesting. And at the time I was studying mercury in seabirds and sort of what influenced mercury concentrations in different tissues and different species. And so it wasn't that big a step to say, well, what about what about plastics and what might that be doing? So um, when I was doing my PhD, I had the opportunity to investigate a long-term diet study of auklets, which are the, the auks, members of the auk family, like puffins and guillemots that we have in the UK, um, but in Alaska uh, and looking for plastic in there. So that was sort of my, that was my introduction, really. Um, that's what sort of gripped me uh, at the beginning. So you were able to conduct the research as part of your PhD? Yeah, it was sort of a side project as part of my PhD. So, um, yeah, we were looking at diet anyway. So we just bashed out a, a short, quick paper. I think we looked at, I mean, we looked at about 2,400 chick food deliveries in three species of auklets across three islands. And I think we found one piece of plastic, um, which is not surprising given that they, they eat plankton and those planktivorous birds are the ones that are more, um, likely to have low amounts of plastic in them. So even though there was a low amount of plastics in in that species, that didn't deter you from further research. How did you kind of continue <laughs> that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Never, never be deterred by finding a null result. Um, 
I had a really good friend in Australia, uh, Dr. Jen Livers, um, and we've been working on some other some other projects together, specifically with flesh-footed shearwaters, which are a wonderful trans-equatorial migrant. Um, so they breed in Australia, New Zealand, and then spend their winter in the northern summer off the coast of Japan um, and in the North Pacific Ocean. And we were working on trying to identify where birds that got caught in long lines in Australia came from. And Jen was involved or uh, was involved in setting up this sort of plastics monitoring project because they were highlighted as a, a species that had unusually high levels of plastic ingestion. Um, and that was, I guess, 2009. Uh, and I was invited down to Australia and we went out to Lord Howe Island in the Tasman Sea uh, and got to see things firsthand. And we've been going back pretty much every year, uh, COVID aside, uh, ever since. So sending to a long-term study, which I guess is invaluable for for our understanding of what's going on. Yeah, we reckon aside from Fulmars in the North Sea, it's the it's the longest study, continuous study of plastic ingestion in in a single species. Okay, fantastic. And so, in a nutshell, how would you describe your research on plastics and birds now? What are your main kind of interests there? It's evolved so much. I mean, early on. I remember being in meetings with relatively high up uh, people in wildlife conservation or uh, or bird biology and, and being told that plastics weren't an issue because we can't demonstrate that there's a population level effect. Why are we even bothering? We shouldn't be wasting our time and precious time and money. Um, you know, that was, you know, less than a decade ago. And to see how much the field has changed in just such a short time. So, you know, originally, you know, the first question is always, you know, how many, what, what species are ingesting plastic and how much? So the sort of the first studies we were doing was just about recording presence and absence and like frequency of occurrence, um, like really super basic stuff. Um, and once we sort of built that foundation, that let us start to interrogate, well, okay, a bird is ingesting plastic, but what does that actually mean for the bird? Um, and the analogy that I like to use is if all you're doing is recording presence absence or looking at beach birds, um, if someone asks you, hey, Neil, how are you doing? And your only two options are alive and dead. It doesn't give you a lot of leeway. Um, so, you know, by looking at those sublethal effects, that's more what we've, what we've shifted into. You know, we've looked at contaminants now. We've looked at blood chemistry. We've looked at histology. Um, we've just started a new project looking at transcriptomics, um, all built around this long-term monitoring project on, on Lord Howe. Um, so we've really moved from, you know, the, the basics, fundamentally quantifying what the issue is, to trying to figure out what it actually means for the birds themselves. And in terms of your work, you've mentioned already some of the people you've collaborated with, but who else do you collaborate with and where are you focusing your research geographically? Um, I mean, I'm a strong believer that good science happens because of good people. Uh, so I collaborate with a bunch of really amazing folks. Uh, so Jen Lavers in, in, in Australia, we've worked together for gosh, more than 15 years now. Um, we sort of joke that we're our, like, she, she's my, my quote unquote field partner. Uh, and I'm her quote unquote field husband. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'd be absolutely lost without her. Um, 
you know, other folks like, uh, like Jen Preventure in Canada, we started working on some stuff really early on, uh, and published a paper in 2015 that surveyed all Canadian seabirds to look at how much plastic, what we knew about plastic ingestion across the whole country. And, you know, now she's in a position at Environment and Climate Change Canada where she's sort of leading on national policy stuff. Um, you know, people like uh, like yourselves and, and Liz Mazden and Nina O'Hanlon at UHI, University of Highlands and Islands. You know, we've done so much work on, uh, on nest debris, something that had been largely ignored or just written off as sort of anecdotal. Um, but to be able to pull that all together in ways that we can start to quantify it, not just at the population level, but at the individual nest scale, and use that to harness opportunistic visits to seabird breeding sites and citizen science, I think is so, that's so cool. Um, yeah, and, uh, look, there, there's going to be countless others that I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting about, but you know, those are sort of the three, the three main threads that have, in, in terms of my collaborations over the last, gosh, almost, well, more than 15 years now. And quite a kind of range of uh, species included and geographical range as well there. Yeah. So while most of our work is sort of focused in Australia, um, you know, we've done work in Canada, in the South Pacific, in the UK, in the Arctic. Um, we've just got a project uh, that I'm starting now with Max LeBaron at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Liz Piogi at New Nazi Government in Labrador. Going to be looking at plastics and, and metals in uh, in country foods, indigenously harvested food sources in in Nunatsiavut. Um, the tools that we can take from one area and apply to another, you know, the opportunities are basically limitless. And I guess because the issue of plastic pollution uh, is global, then that gives kind of scope for doing research anywhere and on a whole range of seabirds. Um, yeah, seabirds are are ubiquitous they're found pretty much everywhere from the high arctic to antarctica you know and and so are plastic so it's it's you know they're sentinels of the health of the marine environment they can act as indicators of of the oceans um so they're a really great system to work in and yeah charismatic they grab the public's attention um because you know who doesn't love to see a soaring albatross um or uh, puffins with fish in his bill. Um, you know, they, they have that sort of cultural appeal as well. Absolutely. And so in terms of your work on plastic ingestion, what, what did you see as the main reason for developing and undertaking your research? And what did you see as the primary need that this was aiming to address? I mean, initially it was a lack of information. Um, early, early on, the idea that studying plastic ingestion was worthwhile was was poo-pooed, as I said. You know, folks saying, you know, don't waste your time. You can't demonstrate population level impacts. Um, move on to something else. Um, but there's something about it. When you open up a dead bird and you're confronted with literally handfuls of identifiable pieces of plastic, Fragments, bottle caps, tile spacers, uh, clips from squid jigging lights. Um, 
you know, you can't help but think that there's something going on. Um, and you know, plastics in birds does not, it doesn't do anything good. It can only do bad. Um, you know, the birds aren't deriving any benefit from having a bunch of plastic sitting in their gut. And so it was that sort of feeling that, you know, nobody else was looking at this. I'm a big fan of the underdogs. Uh, so that's why I love, you know, birds, seabirds that are particularly malign, like gulls uh, or skuas or giant petrels. You know, the ones that tend to get written off as aggressive or, uh, you know, you know, filthy scavengers, that sort of thing. Um, and when we started working on, on flesh-footed shearwaters in Australia, there was hardly anything known about them in terms of, you know, population sizes, what was impacting them. We knew they were getting caught in fisheries, but, you know, the extent and nature of plastic ingestion was completely unknown, even though it had probably been existing and, you know, and, and happening, uh, for decades before we came along. Um, so really we're just avenues to tell the story of the birds um, and no one was telling their story and in what way did you go about assessing the level of plastics in these birds is it literally just going and finding the birds and trying to uh, assess how much plastics they've been ingesting is it is it really um, kind of that level or or there other methods you've been deploying as well um yeah initially that's that's what you do so uh, on lord how we can pump the the bird stomachs with with seawater um and then they can regurgitate plastics. So, you know, we can do this on live birds. Um, you can find dead birds on the beach uh, or on Lord Howe. Sometimes they're hit by vehicles on the island. Um, so, and, and literally, it's a, it's a question of, yeah, literally counting uh, and weighing individual pieces of plastic. Um, and it can be, you know, anything from... That, that forms the, 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 the backbone, the core of the work that we do. And then everything else sort of builds off of that because you've got that thread going through time. You can then start to branch off and you can look at, well, what are the properties of the plastics? So we've got a postdoc looking at that. What contaminants might the plastics be transporting? We've had grad students looking at that. What are the physiological consequences of this plastic ingestion? You know, but it all comes back to the fact that within these birds, we quantify the number uh, and the mass of the amount of plastic in their stomach and and everything else just sort of builds off that but that's really at the core so you said you've been working on lord howe island for quite a few years now would you be able to tell us about some of the challenges that you face when doing research there yeah lord howe is uh we're really spoiled i should say you know lord howe is an amazing island it's an amazing community um it's about 700 kilometers off the east coast of Australia in the Tasman Sea, but it's got a permanent population of about 350. Um, you can fly there from Sydney in about two hours. Um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of the challenges, really the biggest challenge I think on Lord Howe, aside from the, just the cost of getting there, um, is that uh, the problem is just so pervasive and it is mentally exhausting. Um, in a year, we might go through and process samples from, you know, I think this year we did about 180 birds uh, in 10 days. Um, and to be constantly faced with that reminder is, is not quite a strong enough word, but um, 
to come face to face with what we're doing to these birds and to the planet is it's just really confronting and when you you've got to almost switch off and just power through until either the end of the day or the end of the field trip um, until you come back and i think that mental side of it is something we don't talk enough about in conservation science um and certainly i mean i've been to lord howe maybe a dozen times now and that's definitely the hardest part and for you does it take a, an emotional toll and and for the others that you're there with as well do you see that um yeah it absolutely takes mental toll as one of the you know the re- you know, leaders of our research group you know we're also there to support the graduate students and other trainees that that come with us um and so in addition to looking after our own well-being we're also we also have that duty of care um to more junior members of the team uh and it, you can describe dissecting birds on Lord Howe Island and scooping out plastics with your hands and you know picking up a bird and feeling their stomach crunch you can describe that in the most excruciating detail but our experience is that that pales in comparison to somebody actually coming out to the island and experiencing that firsthand nothing really prepares you for that um because it's seen as it's 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 such an abstraction until you're actually there and seeing it, um, which is why we're so um, encouraging of of bringing you know a whole diversity of of people out to the island. We've had writers doing you know long form journalism. We've had uh, a couple of film crews. We've had photojournalists. We've had photographic artists. Um, that have all come out and interpreted their experiences and uh, and our responses to the birds in in their own ways and brought that to to new and diverse audiences that as scientists we we just we can't do that because you know we're scientists um we can't tap into those different subsets of the population um and they try their best to communicate that visceral response um to the audiences that they try and engage in, in the same way that we try and do that with the science. I think that's really important to to acknowledge the kind of emotional toll that it takes. And especially, I guess, when plastics are a, a human problem uh, caused by humans, even though you're in a fairly remote place, thousands of kilometers away from big cities, it's, it must be um, especially hard seeing a human-based problem. Uh, which which species were you focused on on Lord Howe Island? So on Lord Howe, we we work primarily with two species. We've got flesh-footed shearwaters and wedge-tailed shearwaters. Um, flesh-footed shearwaters, Lord Howe Island is their biggest breeding colony. Um, there's about twenty thousand pairs that breed there, and we go at the end of the chick rearing season. So the birds return to the island in October. Um, they'll reconnect with their other half, uh, lay their eggs. The chicks will hatch sort of the end of January. Um, and then they'll spend three months in a burrow, uh, up to three meters underground. And it's there where the parents are, you know, bringing food back to them every, you know, two to four days foraging out in the Tasman sea. And that's how the chicks get the plastic. It's not that the chicks aren't going out and feeding for themselves for the first three months. The parents are bringing that food back. And so, you know, you think about the plastic that we find in these birds, and it's actually gone 
into or out of a seabird at least three times before we get to it. So the parents have ingested it, they've brought it back to the chicks, they've regurgitated it, and the chick has swallowed it. Um, why they do that, we don't really know. Um, the wedge-tailed shearwaters that breed in the same place at the same time of year, feed in the same place, have broadly similar biology, have hardly any plastic in them at all. Just small little tiny fragments. Um, and why is that? That was, a, you know, we thought early on, how naive. This will be perfect. We'll sort this out. Um, you know, 10 years in, we still have more questions than we have answers. Oh, that's really interesting. So is there, across all the different bird species, is there any indication about why some are more prone to ingesting plastics than others? Are there, are there kind of groups that are, are more prone yeah, that's a really interesting question because we, we try and, and figure that out. But part of the challenge in answering that is we need reliable data. There's about 350 species of seabirds in the world. And to find contemporary, reliable, good quality data where you can start to model these relationships is really, really hard. Um, people think, oh, we know so much about plastic ingestion in, in seabirds. But actually, we don't. There are so many species where we've never looked or we did look, but we only looked in a couple of birds. Or we did look, but only in a couple of birds. And in the late 1980s. And the challenge with that is, you know, plastic production is increasing exponentially. And that's not an exaggeration. It's literally an exponential curve. And if you compare what was happening in the late 1980s to what's happening now, it's just a completely different ballgame. You know, we're producing three, four times the amount of plastic that we were producing in the late 80s. Um, and so the birds are encountering a very different environment. So if you want to try and statistically model, right, take into account, you know, the relatedness of species, what they eat, how they forage, their body size, where they are geographically, it quickly becomes apparent that we are lacking so much data. Um, we know that certain families of birds, like the tube noses, the albatrosses, petrels, shearwaters, and storm petrels, they tend to have the higher frequency of occurrence of ingestion. That's not to say that others don't. Um, it's just that they're, they're more likely. They're also one of the most widely distributed groups of birds in the world. They're found in every ocean uh, all over the world. And there's about 120 species of them altogether. So that's not terribly surprising. Um, yeah, why, why, why? This was the question that I, I was chatting with a friend of mine, you know, gosh, years ago. He was raising chickens. And he said to me one day uh, over lunch, I've got these little chickens and they're two days old and they can discriminate food from non-food at two days. Why can't your 30-year-old shearwaters do that? Hmm. And we have no idea. So thinking about how much plastics are ingested by flesh-footed shearwaters, uh, what, what would that be equivalent to, for example, if you compare that to a, a human ingesting plastics, what would that look like? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So our record holder, if you can call it a record, on Lord Howe is one bird that had 276 pieces that weighed 64 grams. Um, that's, that's a lot. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's quite a bit. If you translated that into, you know, say on average, uh, an 75 kilo person, um, that's a, they're wandering around with, you know, between 9 and 15 kilos of plastic. Wow, that's a lot. And and the thing you've got to remember about the shearwaters is that these are chicks just coming out of their burrow. And the next thing, the parents have left. 
they've, they've buggered off for the winter. The chicks come out of their burrow and they have to migrate from Australia up to Japan on their own for the first time and then survive five years at sea and then come back to breed. And so we sort of say, right, sure, you're ingesting nine kilos of plastic, but then you've got to run a marathon and do it backwards without having trained. Hmm. Like that's the level of challenge that these birds are facing. And do we know anything about the survival rates of the birds with more plastics in, or is that still still to be discovered? It's really tricky because the shear, the shearwaters, like a lot of seabirds, they have delayed breeding. So that means that the chicks will come out and then they will go and spend literally five to seven years at sea before coming back. Um, in some species like albatrosses, it can be 15 to 20 years. And so we're only now starting to see the first returns of birds that we um, that we ringed as chicks so we can start to follow individual fates. Um, but yeah, honestly, it's just... It's just going to take another couple of years of data collection before we can answer that one, I'm afraid. Awesome. But hopefully some interesting results to to come there. In terms of the types of plastics that are being ingested, you, you've mentioned some of the types. Is it is it just a whole range or does it tend to be more fragments or, or bits of rope? Or You mentioned bottle caps. Like what, what are you seeing more frequently? Most of the plastic that we find are unidentifiable fragments. You know, little pieces that you have no idea what they could actually be from. Um, you have no idea how long they've been in the ocean. They could be floating around for decades, for weeks, for hours before they were ingested. Um, we see a small amount of polystyrene. We see very small amounts of um, like film or sheet-like fabrics. Um, and of the fragments, you know, those sort of identifiable things. You know, we found birolids. We found pieces from toys. Um, we find, you know, caps from things like toothpaste, uh, uh, bottles of toothpaste, tubes of toothpaste, that sort of thing. Um, but the overwhelming majority, I would say probably 98% of the items that we pull out, um, we have no idea what they were originally or how old, in fact, they even are. And I guess they're... And then it's also impossible to know where they've come from as well. I mean, that's exactly it. Once plastic gets into the ocean, it can travel the world. You know, there's the, the famous case of the Friendly Floaties, which was a container that went over a ship in the North Pacific Ocean, I think in the 90s. And within about 15 years, these little rubber duckies had found their way to Chile, Mexico, the United States, Japan, Australia, but into Europe. There's one in Britain in 2004, Spain in 2007, the east coast of Canada in the early 2000s. Um, once plastic gets into the ocean, it literally travels the world. Um, so it's not as easy as pointing the finger at Australia in this case and saying, right, you're putting too much plastic into the ocean because you have no idea where it's come from. Uh, one question I'd like to ask everybody is, if you were to be given... 10 million pounds research funding to continue your work on birds and plastics what would you do and what would you prioritize <laughs> wow um i think the first thing i would do is uh is invest that in people um one of the the trickiest things to do with 
research, as a lot of folks will know, is, is find the funding for it, even when you're at you know, relatively well-supported institutions like the Natural History Museum. Um, so the work that we've been doing on Lord Howe Island, we've never had a massive grant. We've, you know, up until about three or four years ago, I don't think we had a single grant for more than a couple thousand pounds. That's, you know, everything that we have done has been totally on a shoestring. The thing that costs a lot of money, and rightly so, is people. Um, so whether that's graduate students, postdoctoral researchers, research scientists themselves, um, I mean, 10 million pounds can create a couple of really nice permanent jobs for, pe for people. And that certainty means you can start to explore the challenging and the risky because you don't need to quickly publish or you're up against a deadline to get your thesis submitted <clears throat> or you've got to you know deliver so many high impact papers from this grant before you can apply for the next one so i think you know getting a couple of really amazing people in the team on permanent contract would be i think the best investment you could make and that will return i would say tenfold um in terms of you know non-people costs i think uh one thing that i would probably prioritize is uh honestly is, is a lot of the analytical costs in the lab um you know they're not they're not cheap so you know we're often very limited in how many samples we can analyze uh, to understand things like you know the transcriptomics. You know how how are plastic and how is plastic ingestion affecting you know gene expression. Um, I think that that would be probably where I would where I would go. There's the, the one thing that we've learned from the however many years we've been doing this now, more than fifteen years on Lord Howe, is that. You can start with this little ball. It's just like I was saying earlier with the, you know, just the presence, the frequency, the number and the mass of, of plastic items. Just as that forms the core of our research project, the presence of plastic in birds forms the core of our collaborations. But we can go outside of that. And we've looked at plastics under a synchrotron. We've worked with vets. We've worked with um, medical researchers. Uh, we've worked with, um, uh, physicists. We've worked with chemical engineers. The idea is that, you know, we, we can't know everything, but we, we can provide this nucleus that others can build onto and around and intersect with. And so, you know, things like doing all the, you know, molecular work or histology. I mean, I have no idea how any of that works, but we've got collaborators who do. Um, and if they say something's going to cost, you know, 15,000 pounds, okay, that's going to cost 15,000 pounds. We usually don't have 15,000 pounds. Um, so I think a large sum of research money would enable us to explore new and different ways of building on this, almost this ball of string that we've been building over the last 15 years. Um, in ways that, you know, we can't even imagine because we don't know what's out there. Okay, so it, it, 
definitely a need there to collaborate across different fields, but also with with people and investing in people. Now, earlier you said that good research happens because of good people. So how do we get good people working on plastics and birds? How do we do that? Um, how do you get good people? I mean, that's sort of our, our ethos at the Adrift Lab. Um, you know, you invest in people because, you know, they're the people that you're going to be collaborating with. They're the people who are going to take what they've learned and go out into the world. Um, just like little bits of plastic floating in the ocean. Um, and you never know when that's going to come back. Um, I think not, not to say that we've worked with people who, you know, everyone has been amazing. No, that's definitely not the case. Um, because in a lot of places, especially in, in academia and universities, um, ego is a very strong motivator, um, for better or, or for worse. You know, how, how do you, how do you get the good people in? Honestly, some of it involves just finding the right connection. Some of it involves providing the right environment. Um, and some of it involves taking a chance. And sometimes that means you're going to get burned and we have been. Um, but a lot of the times it means you develop amazing collaborations that turn into great friendships and these can last for decades. So in terms of retaining good people, and how do you make sure that the barriers are removed to make people feel safe and, and kind of wanted within this field? How do you think we can do that? And have you done anything yourself to kind of help with this? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key thing. You know, we talk a lot about recruiting diverse people into science, but... I don't think that's necessarily the challenge. I think the challenge really is is the retention. Um, so I've I've done quite a bit of work specifically around LGBTQ plus people in science, and you know the one thing that we've quite regularly found is that when you give people stability, they will thrive. Um, and whether that's in terms of contracts, in terms of living situations, in terms of mentorship. Um, once they feel safe and supported to be, you know, their full authentic selves, both personally and professionally, um, then that's when they do their best work. Um, and that's not always easy in sort of the current high pressure, uh, high burnout area in in academia you know there's more and more people now that are you know seeing about people leaving academia and certainly in the uk the academic sector has a number of challenges around recruitment and retention um and that's not unique to the uk that's in many countries um so through organizations like lgbtq plus stem which i help run with izzy jaisinger from the university of sheffield you know we can at least address part of that by giving LGBTQ plus people that professional space to be themselves. And then they can take that back into their home institutions and, and build off of it. So again, almost like a, like a hub and spoke um, sort of setup. And just like, you know, having good people do good science and plastics in the ocean, if you build that, that will eventually disseminate um, perhaps not as fast as we might want, but it'll get there one day. I hope so. 
and I'm sure it will happen in no small part because of your contribution as well, because I know you've put a, a lot of your own hard work and effort into LGBTQ plus community and a lot of uh, events and uh, coordination. Uh, so I think you should be certainly credited with that. Um, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It just remains for me to say thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, thanks, Neil. It has been uh, a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for having me. Under the Surface is part of the Popcorn Project. Popcorn is funded by the Northern Periphery and Arctic Programme, part of the European Union's Interreg Programme.